What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. Now's the time to find your color, your paint, and everything to get started during red, white, and blue savings at the Home Depot. Transforming your room is easier than ever. With the best deals online and in-store, you can confidently select your color and the tools for your next paint project. Get a colorful new experience and the right paint for the right price. Save $10 on one gallon and $40 off three and five gallons for a limited time only at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Limit 25 gallons per household. See store for details. Welcome to Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. Today, we're going to be doing a book review with my co-host, senior copywriter at Whole Foods, Chad Lott. It's not just for people who sit at desks. I mean, you can really prioritize uh, being stingy with your time, and and it's going to work for everybody. This is another episode of Innovation and Leadership. Today, we're going to be picking from the 400-plus books on business, marketing, and strategy that we've read, and talking about one of them that we feel like can have a big impact on innovators and entrepreneurs as they try to invent the future. As always, in addition to learning from the show, we hope you'll consider clicking on the Child Rescue tab on our website, iCollective.co, to see how you can help change the life of a child that's been rescued from abuse and trafficking. Also, we love all of you who've been emailing to tell us what parts of the episodes you really liked or or what was helpful to you. And to everybody else, if you have time, we'd love to hear from you. Just send me an email at stories at iCollective.co. And now on to the episode. Chad, thanks for making time. Always. This is always fun to do your podcast. <laughs> okay. So, uh, you know, a lot of my friends know I'm a real book nerd, uh, but I'm kind of excited. The first book we're going to cover is one that you got me to read. Um, let's talk about how did you find Deep Work by Cal Newport? Sure. So Cal Newport was on a podcast that I really like called The Federalist. And The Federalist is kind of a conservative podcast, but it's not it's not a dumb uh, trying to get you fired up and angry podcast. It's very much about like constitutional ideas, it co- but it also covers in a very intelligent way uh, culture, you know, like kind of like the whole idea that like culture is uh, that politics is downstream from culture. So it never really uh, gets too in the weeds of like, oh, look what this crazy person said. It's always more about principles. And so one of the principles that the show is always kind of going over is what makes people happy and content in society or work. And so Cal Newport was a guest on on this podcast, and he really walked through um, his his work, his history as a professional, his history as an author, and you know when he was he was talking through it he was really talking about how how he's gotten success by decreasing distraction in his life and he's a knowledge worker right he he divides his time between computer programming and being an author and i i believe he's a he's a professor as well um but he really just was explicit about describing some things that are a problem for society that like he could have just written out a checklist called Chad, you're doing it wrong. And then listed out all this stuff. And I, I, I felt like he was talking right at me because just the, you know, the, the distraction from social media, uh, the consumption of shallow media, uh, attention shifting at work, uh, drive by meetings at work, like all, all this stuff, like being chained to email, all the stuff I was kind of aware of. But the way he described it was just really powerful for me because it was it's almost like I felt like I was having an intervention, you know, where he's like, hey, look, man, these are all these things that are causing you strife and you're not even noticing it. It's it's almost like what I equate to people who have like a drinking problem but don't know it. You know, they're like, hey, I only have like five or six beers a, a night. You know, it's no big deal. 
And like maybe you haven't crashed a car, maybe you haven't gone to jail, maybe you haven't wrecked a marriage, but you're not doing as well as you could. could. And and that's the same thing with this sort of concept of distraction that he's talking about is that like with all these tiny little uh, cuts of distraction, you're really be dr- being drained from achieving work. And so I, I was I immediately bought the book. I, I ordered it before I even finished listening to the podcast. Yeah, thanks to Amazon, it came in two days and I read it in one sitting. And um, unlike a lot of these marketing books or these efficiency books or these life hacking books out there, I found just a tremendous amount of ideas in the book that were actionable from day one. I mean, I read the book and then the next day my work, my work life changed. Yeah. I, I, like I had heard people recommending it to me. I was interested in it, but it was kind of like it was down the wish list on the books for me personally. Sure. Um, but I remember when you started talking to me about it and it started reminding me of the Andrew Smart book, Autopilot. Mm-hmm. And uh, which I, to me, those, they're so interconnected. I like start crossing which concepts came from which book, you know, but, totally. um, but it's funny. I, you know, like just the habit of listening to one or two of these books a week for however many years, you kind of get like a sense of how these books are going to go. Right. And I felt like over and over it like got past my Jess in like learning mode where I'm kind of like cataloging what the book is about so that when I have that problem later, I can pull the book back out and re-listen to it. Right. Sure. And like similar to you, it was like it was like the concepts hit me as so true. They they were like making me think of distinct schedule differences I was going to do different about my life. You know, like right now I've been working on um, a bunch of writing for my own like sales training courses and like courses to help merger integrations go better and things like this. Right. And, uh, I like had to like, because you got me to read this book, I turn things off. I, I like, I get up at 5am right till 2pm and like turn my phone completely onto airplane mode. So I couldn't get texts and email. I, uh, I set up my computer so I don't get any email alerts, no social media alerts. Right. And I just like sit in front of my whiteboard. Like I love the one line in the book where he talks about, like the superior work that comes out of these people who can get, you know, for a four hour block just to focus on something or more. Right. And how like empirically they're just coming up with so much higher quality of stuff. And while like 99.9% of the American workforce is like trying to cram things into every waking second, um, we are so involved in task switching of the phone dinging or the Facebook checking or the whatever, right? Um, Or just getting constant email from your colleagues interrupting your work um, that we confuse volume with quality. At least that's a lot of the message that I got from it. Yeah. Uh, Well, two things. One, I would say when you mentioned earlier about you read a lot of these books and this book was down in your queue, I would really advise people to move this book to the front of their queue because I know a lot of your listeners are are, are similar to us. Like you're always reading something all the time. There's always a podcast going on. Um, The thing about this book is it will help you evaluate what you're actually doing when you're doing all that other stuff. Um, I think there, there's like this little worm in the back of my mind that is always kind of giving me the issue with like all this kind of efficiency obsession and this life hacking obsession mm. where it's like, okay, say you were completely high tuned. Like imagine you're a race car and you had the best engine, the best tires, the best aerodynamics. Now what? Now what are you going to do? And the deep work is what you would be doing. Like the deep work is the high level racing that you would be doing after you've achieved all these efficiencies. And, you know, like it's really important to think about like, okay, you've carved out all this time. So what are you supposed to do with this time? Are you going to cram it with more 
Facebook quizzes and emails helping people find stuff they should already know where it is, like all, all this type of stuff. And, you know, Cal Newport really like this. This book, I think, is really just a great guide. It, it's almost like if you were on a diet and you wanted to like lose 30 pounds before you ran your marathon. Like this is that version of that. Like it'll help you trim out all this other stuff so that when you do introduce other ideas on top, you can do it more efficiently. And I mean, I, ju I just don't have enough praise for this book. And I, I usually like kind of, I always feel like if I read one of these books and I get like one useful idea out of it, it was kind of worth it. This book is just crammed with useful stuff. Yeah. You know, I do think, um, I thought it was also very intellectually honest of him to talk about how for like a salesperson where, you know, your value has so much to do with your network and mm -hmm. being in touch is how you make your money, right? Right. Uh, that that this may not be the, the best concept to apply to that, <laughs> like disconnecting from the world, right? Mm -hmm. uh, for, for large blocks of time. Or CEOs where they have, right. they have so deeply um, reached a level of mastery on what they're at that their value is, is being a decider, right? That's he, right. he talks about right. that term. Um, where like they their role really is processing and deciding processing and deciding um that that this may not be the thing for you right but yep. um but basically like other than that if you're doing some sort of knowledge work where uh, you need to bring a superior level of creativity or a superior level of thinking or a superior level of innovation that the way we work in Western society with our email alerts and our text message alerts um, is, is basically doing the opposite of helping you rise to the top of your field. Totally. You know, and I, I liked that part where he made the distinction between who would benefit from this the most. And, you know, one of the important things to realize about most of us is most of us aren't Jack Dorsey or Richard Branson. We're not like just running through a room high-fiving people and throwing out ideas and just minor course corrections and hoping an awesome team covers it, you know, so that the person who um, would benefit, uh, the person who wouldn't benefit from disconnection is pretty rare, you know, most of us are, are the doozers that keep the keep the lights on, you know, and, and for me, I, you know, I'm not a CEO, I don't have CEO aspirations or even like really strong leadership aspirations, but I do have aspirations to be a complete master of the thing that I do. And this book is huge for that. But the other side of it, too, is if you're a CEO and you're in charge of a team, you would want to have a team using this as a model for how to work. You know, so I think even if you were a person who were maybe bristled at the idea of uh, parsing out your time and being harder to connect with and being harder to contact, like maybe, maybe that doesn't quite work for you, but it's definitely going to work for your immediate team, especially your really high performing uh, knowledge workers. Yeah, you know, um, it, it's interesting. Again, the the book I referenced earlier, Autopilot by Andrew Smart, um, mm -hmm. that newer science that's shown, um, you know, basically by accident from fMRI machines where they were doing studies with um, patients trying to figure out, hey, what part of the brain, what part of the brain controls this, what part of the brain controls that, right? And right. when they left people in there in between what they were studying, that different parts of the brain lit up. And they, assume, <laughs> they assumed that it was something wrong with the machine. Right. <laughs> you know? They're like, well, they're not thinking about anything. I haven't given them anything to think about. So their brain must be inactive. So it must be something right. wrong with the machine. And, and, you know, the happy accident turned into finding out that um, the parts of our brain that process all this thing, you know, all this information we take in on a daily basis that that doesn't activate when we're actively engaging the conscious system in our brain. And right. he just goes through like 
individual after individual where you hear like their discovery happened when they were like on a walk in nature or like Isaac Newton sitting on a bench, right? <laughs> and like the apple falls and he thinks about gravity. And it's like, do you think he really had time scheduled in his day timer? Sit on bench, <laughs> wait for discovery, right? Right. Uh, and and yet um, we so blatantly disregard downtime as inefficient rather than looking at the patterns of how many people have benefited from that um, from that experience. And mm-hmm. I loved in Deep Work where he says, he talks about the guy that, I can't remember which senior, super genius professor it was, but he said, I left for lunch and he was just sitting in his chair staring at the whiteboard. And I got back from lunch and he was still in the same position sitting in the chair staring at the whiteboard. Right. And it just sounds lazy. Do you know what I mean? It sounds, oh, totally. it sounds like a bad, you know, sounds like a bad employee, sounds like... Um, somebody who's not really a go-getter, you know, sounds like the absent-minded professor, right? Mm-hmm. And then you come to find out these are the guys that are making it to the top of their field. And right. it makes me start to question the like, you know, <laughs> when I've got five minutes to get somewhere that's five minutes away and I check my email anyways, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, he, he really is, a, I have a funny wife story to tell about this, but uh, I'll start where he talks about, um, you know, in the second part of the book, his second rule is embracing boredom. And if you're a person who's always redlining what you're doing all the time, it seems kind of crazy to think that you would just sit and just stare at a wall or do nothing. I mean, there, there's some movie I was watching the other day. It was like a movie from the 60s. And one of the characters is just sitting in his living room, like smoking a cigarette. And then somebody comes in and they're like, you know, then the scene starts. But you're like, man, it's so weird to think that somebody would just be staring at something, smoking a cigarette. But what he's doing is actually thinking. And um and I, I think that one of the things that people have a hard time with is like sometimes when you're just sitting around thinking, it looks like you're doing nothing. And we're, we're trained by this industrial model to always be in motion, always being able to show our work, always being able to uh, present the project that we're working on. I mean, I can't tell you how much time I waste doing recaps of projects for people who are all involved. You know, like I, I, it's, one, it's one of the things that drives me the craziest is like, yeah, you do need a postmortem. You do need to show results. But at a certain time, it's like if, if you're dropping almost a third as much time creating um, proof of your work, I mean, then, then what's going on? It's the sort of thing that used to drive me crazy in math class. Like, you know, at a certain point, you can just do multiplication and division in your head in like third or fourth grade, right? But they still want to, you to see the work. And you're like, man, this is worthless. I can just do this in my head. Why are you making me show the work? And so I think people are trained and compelled to always want to show their work. So he talks about, uh, Cal Newport talks about how a lot of people become obsessed with doing shallow work that they can show. Like, so they're like, oh man, I was so responsive on my emails today. And you got Look at how many of my to-dos I got checked off. Look, look out at everything I got checked off. But maybe you didn't do anything really innovative. You know, did you create a new... A uh, line of code? Did you come up with a better way of describing something? Did you come up with a, a, a smarter way of just stacking product in the back of your in the back of your warehouse? Yeah, you know, there, there it's like things. yeah. No, go ahead. Uh, I mean, there's just all these things, and it's not necessarily about knowledge work either. Uh, one of my friends, uh, Josh, I noticed he had completely disappeared off of Facebook, and I, I, he came over to my house yesterday from uh, Santa Maria, which is like a couple hours south of here. And I asked him, I was like, hey, man, how come you're off of Facebook? And he said, oh, I read that book that you wrote about and it changed everything. And he runs <laughs> a bar. you know, he's a bar and restaurant manager. So like it, it was interesting, the whole idea of really defending yourself against time burglary. It, it, it's not just for people who sit at desks. I mean, you can really prioritize 
uh, being stingy with your time and, and it's going to work for everybody. Well, you know, what's interesting. I've read other, I've read other, you know, quote unquote time management books. And it's funny that they, they talk about saying no to projects. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I, I hear these like kind of what I feel like are lame excuses about how it really makes society better. But really I get these like underlying feelings of selfishness about my success and it's all about me. Right. And I, right. they've never fully resonated. Uh, it doesn't help that I'm the kind of guy that's like the abominable yes man. You know, like I yeah. want to say yes right. to everything, right? So so the premise of saying no to begin with, I don't love, you know, I don't come by naturally. And then it feels, when it feels a bit selfish, then I'm thinking like, yeah, I don't know, man. Like, yeah, I get it. But, you know, I want to care about people too. And what I felt like was different about this approach was the concept that it wasn't like about choosing me or choosing others. It wasn't a, it wasn't like a selfish argument. It was a, um, almost more like a responsibility argument. Right. Like right. if you're like, if you really claim that, you know, what you're adding to this organization or that the way you're going to provide for your family or whatever is by making significant progress on, on this thing, not just like, you know, mindless drone work. Right. Um, right. then, you know, your actions are not lining up with your stated integrity there, you know, like, sure. and, and it's just now that I'm like, so aware of that. Now I feel responsible for like, <laughs> when I recognize like, oh, this is not like, I'm not likely to do something awesome with the way I keep switching things here. Right. Yeah. Um, it makes me think, uh, do you know this book team of teams by Stanley McChrystal, the guy who used to run the joint special operations command and they ran all of us special operations command over in Iraq and Afghanistan. No, I'm not familiar with it. I, I love it. But one of the things that I really like is how he digs into this old idea of, we need to separate the people with brains versus the people who are going to do the work. Right. And you know, it is kind of like an Aristotle thing when he was mad that Socrates had been executed, you know, and he, he put forth this <laughs> this kind of concept. But that, you know, the industrial age, um, this guy Taylor, really, he's the guy that made the biggest profits in the Industrial Revolution here in America, uh, pre like precisely tasking workers and using them like a robot. Right. Um, and he made so much money with these simple tasks um, that everybody tried to adopt him and copy him. And the problem is that that ideology is still put forth of like, look at the individual permanent productivity from staff members, even mm -hmm. though the type of task that's being done now is, is typically complex. You know, if you're, if you are not at a minimum wage job, most of us are doing something that does require more than just a warm body, right? It does require uh, active decision-making at, at a higher degree and, and discovery and innovation. But yet this idea of, the, the lone tyrant at the top with his thousand helpers, even though we wouldn't say that on our outside voices, so many of us have our organizations organized that way where, yeah, we talk about employee engagement, but really we all know the boss is just going to veto it and do it his way. Right. Um, versus this, like you were saying, hey, you know, if you run a team, you know, maybe looking at how that team is run and, and do you have it structurally set up? so that they are doing deep work is something that I completely agree with to be a huge value for, for almost any organization. Yeah. You know, and, you know, you talk about that, that Aristotle, Socrates thing, you know, and one of the real like discomforting ideas is that a lot of this deeper thought, higher work sort of depends on a minimum wage workforce, right? So, you know, it's like, where do you apply these ideas to your organization? Um, you know, it's the, the whole idea of, like, what did, I think Nietzsche called it, it was like an, the idea of like an aristocracy over the workforce, right? That it was, it was like kind of a natural thing. 
but what Cal Newport's kind of saying is like, you know, maybe you should um, not have that. But I also think that he has a little bit of, um, you know, like he also acknowledges that maybe this isn't for everybody. This is for a certain type of person who wants to do a certain type of work. So I, I don't really know. I'm a little agnostic on like whether or not deep work is for everybody. Um, no, I, like, I completely yeah, agree. Yeah. Like, I think, you know, I had jobs early in life where I was doing construction and I was on a jackhammer for, you know, a 16 year old. I'm on a jackhammer taking out a <laughs> taking out a, a sidewalk in front of a Boston pizza restaurant. Right. And yeah. I had I worked on the oil and gas pipeline where they're like, listen, stand here and make sure no rocks hit the pipeline when we fill it back in with the backhoe. Right. Sure. And yeah. it's not like they don't want me to have my brain on. It's not like they don't want me to be spotting things that could go better. But basically, they want me to stand there and make sure no rocks hit the pipeline, right? Right. Um, where I look now at at what we're what we're doing, and you know, on the creativity side, right? Where we keep one of the, one of the benefits of the podcast is we've had a lot of groups and and companies reaching out to us saying, "Hey, can you help us create content?" Especially on the video side, we've got you know, some fancy video cameras like the kind they shot Lord of the Rings on red cameras, right? right? 4K drone and stuff. And it's easy to just shoot from the hip. But really what I find happens when we come up with those video concepts is they look about like everybody else's in the same genre. Like, <laughs> you know, if the cardinal sin of advertising is blending in, I'm not sure that our like our first ideas <laughs> have ever been anything too great, right? Um, and it's it's been like the sitting on Vimeo for hours and and then stopping and thinking without other people interrupting where like you know what I would at least feel like are are the more differentiated ideas have come out like influence process you know research process research process and right. and doing that part alone um I, I've personally found a huge benefit in. Yeah, I mean, you have to really. I, I do. I can't tell you how many of those same ty- kinds of videos I've worked on, where like there's a lot of money involved. You go shoot on nice cameras. It looks great, and it's just nice. You know, it's like you know, it, it meets it's the like standard, pot- right? It meets the standard. Uh, it's like the Pottery Barn play setting. Like you can come <laughs> over. It's gonna look nice, but you deep down you know you could have gotten something cooler, or you could have even spent less money and did, done something funkier. Yeah, you know. And I, I think that as long as you're responding to emails and looking at surface level entertainment, like if you're only ever looking at the newest, hottest YouTube videos, you're not gonna think deeply about like why do these things work. You know, why, what is compelling? What is interesting? What has not just what's been done before? Like, I mean, I, with videos especially, we'll get not so much with Whole Foods work, but like with more freelance type stuff I've worked on, you'll get a brief that is like, make it a thing like this thing. And you're like, okay, well, that's, that's not going to work anymore because that's their thing. You know, it, mm-hmm. it's, and you can only get to the new thing through deep work. And I think that like all these new concepts and these new ideas people think they just come out of nowhere but they it's really like they come from like really really deep research um for example there's a movie that just came out a new horror movie called the witch and it 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 was it it just came out of left field it's a pretty low budget movie but it doesn't look like a low budget movie and the guy who wrote and directed it his name his name is robert eggers and the reason why this movie unlike a hundred other horror movies that came out last year is so interesting is he did real, real deep work. I mean, he read the entire Calvinist Bible. He uh, he spent four and a half years going to um, Puritan historical uh, sites and museums. Because I mean, the whole movie is written in 
the tongue of the 1630s, and it takes place outside of a Puritan uh, compound in the 1630s. And it's about, um, I, I just can't recommend it highly enough as a movie because it's so interesting. And, and it's definitely, it's an R-rated movie. It's definitely uh, not for children. But what's so interesting about it is this dude spent four and a half years of deep work really researching, really understanding, really coming up with an idea of what this movie should be. And like, no one saw that movie, uh, no one saw that work. But when they see the result of that work, they're just blown away. And I, I think there's an opportunity to do something similar like that with almost every single job, especially creative jobs. Well, I think this is a good place to wrap up part one. Um, check in for part two of, of uh, our book review, Deep Work. We're going to talk about how Chad uses this concept at Whole Foods. We're going to talk about some of the hacks they recommend in the book for, you know, if you don't have four-hour blocks of time open at this point in your life, what can you do about it, and some other ideas. Thanks for listening. Now is the time to find your color, your paint, and everything to get started during red, white, and blue savings at the Home Depot. Transforming your room is easier than ever. With the best deals online and in-store, you can confidently select your color and the tools for your next paint project. Get a colorful new experience and the right paint for the right price. Save $10 on one gallon and $40 off three and five gallons for a limited time only at The Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Limit 25 gallons per household. See store for details.